I was on the BBC's front row this week, oh, which brilliant. is, yeah, it's a bit since I've been on and I love doing it because it's always so nice to be there. And it was a particularly lively episode with um, Boyd Hilton. Um, and we were talking about Bl- uh, Blonde, the film, right. uh, with Anna de Armas, which we had um, reservations about, but we both liked her film about Marilyn Monroe. Um, and then we were talking about Stephen Moffat's latest uh, TV series, Inside Man, which I loathe. I very um, rarely loathe anything. And both Tom Sutcliffe, who was presenting, and Boyd adored it. Oh, really? Controversial. Controversial and lively conversation. It was great fun, actually. I, I love um, Front Row. It's always nice, a pleasure to be on it. It really um, is. And it's all so relaxed and you just feel like prop- people are properly, properly talking. Yeah, and there was a wonderful short story writer on with us called Anna Bailey, um, who, um, yeah, who again was just sort of such a joy to meet and yeah. a person full of sort of interest and hopefulness. And um, yeah, I like it because it is like, as the actress said to the critic, <laughs> a conversation about the arts and you're just allowed to talk about them properly. Yeah. Um, what have you been up to this week, Nancy? Well, I went um, to see Much Ado nothing, uh, About Nothing at the Globe. And um, yeah, no, I l- absolutely loved it. You know, having been twice in a week now, Sunday and then another Sunday, although I think they were doing an evening show as well, which I, gosh, I've never, I've never done two on a Sunday. But um, no, I just, I absolutely loved it. It was, I really, really heard it. You know, there's, there was detail. I mean, we talked last week about how many different versions of it we've seen, and I've never not enjoyed it as a play, and it is completely glorious, but I just, it was so clear. And it was fantastic, as you had said, about having the all-female ha- household and having a Leonata. And, um, you know, and she was just Katie awesome. Katie Stevens was brilliant. Yeah, who, yeah. who Joe's known since they were 16. They were at the National Youth Theatre together. So for oh. him, it was, you know, additionally glorious. And, and um, But all of it was just so clever. I really, it, the moment with the accordions, I found incredibly moving. Twelve accordions, apparently. Yeah, it was just, yeah. it was really, really special. And I thought Lucy Phelps and Ralph Davis as, as Beatrice and Benedict were just... Just gloriously naughty. And there was such great chemistry between them. And I thought that Claudio was brilliant and Hero was brilliant. And it was it was so fresh and, and uh, yeah, really, really clever. Yeah, it was. Tri- it. I thought it was triumphant. I, I, um, I've been talking to my students at the American Drama Academy. Bada. Bada. This week about it. And they hadn't been to the Globe before. And so they went to see that. And yeah. And found it an absolute joy. And we were talking about the way that, um, in fact, um, it made some things really clear. I, I think the thing in the programme, which is um, about um, the fact that men in war and men who have been in war together yeah. believe other men who have been in war with them. Right. And that explains the whole business about how Claudio is duped. I thought that was really coherent and made yeah. such sense of it. And in fact, then allowed um, the ending, which is really always hard to swallow, sort of to work because she could forgive him because it was another consequence of war rather than a, a consequence of life going forward. And yeah. I, yeah, I thought it was terrific. There's always a thing, though, there's a big thing in, in Shakespeare about the bastard, isn't it? Yeah. And the bastard being the baddie. 
I mean, I don't. You can't. You can't rewrite that because it appears, sort of, you know, throughout all of the canon, and you know. It, but it is an interesting thing. It's in Lear and it's in King John and, and this thing about illegitimacy and, and however much you try and modernise concepts and modernise the regendering of, of parts and stuff, there are these slightly archaic yeah. themes. So, yeah, again, I thought... I think that's so interesting, actually, because I've been you've been thinking about that with monarchy, of course, yeah, yeah. because, you know, the whole business about what we've been actually witnessing in our lives with the accession of King Charles III and the death of the Queen Elizabeth II, you realise how vital it is to monarchy that there is a clear succession. You know, when they yeah. all line up on the front pew of the Abbey and they say, you know, here we all are, we're coming up. Yeah. And I... You know, that's why in Shakespeare, you suddenly understand all those bastards in Shakespeare. That's why they were such a threat. They're always dangerous because they represent a threat to the natural order. And I think, you know, that sense of Shakespeare that you look backwards and forwards with him. Yes. Incredibly strong, really. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. But we've had a good week at the theatre, both of us, because, um, and this is the subject of this week's um, episode of As the Actress Said to the Critic, with me, the critic. Critic Sarah Crompton and me Nancy Carroll, the actress, and we uh, went out together on rare, very rare, <laughs> on uh, Friday, was it, to yes. see um, a comedy also rare. We found ourselves at Eureka Day at the Old Vic, yeah, um, which is a comedy about. Well, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? It's based around the idea of vaccination yeah. in a mumps epidemic. Although weirdly written before. Covid. Written by <laughs> Jonathan Spector. Yeah. Um, in 2018. Long before Covid. Yeah. And yet yeah. suddenly fascinatingly relevant now. Yes. But lots of it was relevant. I mean, I think, you, you know, just the nature of careful discourse is such an interesting thing, isn't it? And I and the nature of, of what it is to be a parent and judging other people's parenting boundaries and and then also what happens when people feel unsafe and where those boundaries shift and where you draw the line and are you sort of in the team are you or are you sort of drawing up your drawbridge and say, I'll see you, I'll see you the other side. Um, reviewing it, I spent the entire time trying not to use the phrase woke, which yeah. is one of my uh, least favourite phrases. And I, I, I suspect wasn't uh, really in vogue in 2018 when he wrote it. But basically, it's a sort of um, a satire of a group of very well-meaning, very intense, very middle-class parents in California, yeah. in, in Berkeley. And um, they're a very particular type. It's very carefully set up that they yeah. are the kind of people who, who have ethically sourced donuts and, um, <laughs> you know, knit their own yogurt. And yeah, yeah. It, they're led by this uh, guy who is um, wears shorts and a scarf and uh, I thought the costumes were really clever. Yeah, I love yeah. how. And he wears shorts and a scarf. And he quotes Rumi at the end of the board meetings, which, you know, closes his eyes and makes everybody sort of feel the space. Yeah. Um, and it's got um, Helen Hunt yeah. in it, who's really very good. But what's fascinating about it is how, um, well, I thought what was really fascinating about it is that it's got one scene. That is one of the most laugh out loud oh. scenes I've I, I, I've it was witnessed genius. in a theatre. I mean, it, it did reduce the audience to a collapsed heap. 
Yeah, so they they have to uh, bring together um, a sort of Zoom meeting because of the uh, mumps epidemic that they're going through, um, and suddenly the the feed in reaction to the Zoom meeting takes over the, the it's projected onto the back of the set, and it was just genius. But the, but I cannot imagine what it must have been like to perform in front of an audience who aren't listening to a word you're saying because they are on the floor reading the feed that is projected behind the actors. And that, but the whole thing was just, it was so, so clever. It's incredibly, incredibly subtle, really, because a row breaks out among the board, among yeah. the different views of the people, of the vaccinators and the anti-vaxxers. And so, and they have to keep sustaining that yes. on the stage. And the four actors, five actors on the stage have to keep this argument going. And they, all, but they also have to just cope with these Ales of laughter yeah. from, I thought what was so brilliant about the writing of the feed and the timing of it is that we've all been there. So it starts off on that kind of people passing random comments, yes, you know, about where certain people are. And it so quickly accelerates from arguments about whether turmeric and ginger are a better <laughs> cure for months and ibuprofen yeah, yeah. to, of course, inevitably, you know, the Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a different attitude to medicine, big pharma, yeah. poisoning your children, you know, and those terrible sort of rows between parents where quickly one, day, you know, one will be saying, I, you know, I wouldn't allow this injection of my child and another one's saying, oh, that's, you know, if you really want to protect your child, then you should get yeah, the jab. Yeah. It's really, but it's really the first funny. time that we, that I've seen anything um i mean i'm sure more will be written and will you know come out at some point but it all feels very recent um that that, that we've been able to laugh at the the whole anti-vaxxer vibe because up until very very recently it's been a hugely emotive subject and, and yeah. continues to be i mean i even just filming at the end of last year with people having to still um uh what's the word hide in a room um, quarantine. 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 <laughs> Hello. Uh, <laughs> Earth to Nancy. Uh, quarantine for a week um, because they hadn't been vaccinated yeah, yeah. and how tricky and emotive that was. And 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 I, I you sort of get it. I get it. And there is no right answer, really. And it's the same with, you know, you and I bringing up kids when all the MMR yeah. stuff happened. And it's really, really tough. And, and you know, and they and I, there is no way to win an argument, and 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 so the whole culture around listening and hearing and how careful that has to be, and to to put that in the middle of a comedy, yeah. there was great relief in laughing about yeah. it because it is such a difficult subject. I thought the clever thing about the play was that um, he, I, I, I think you probably know which side of the argument he would fall on, but he yeah. gives, and certainly the thing he's poking most fun at yeah. is the idea of these very middle class, very privileged people yeah. um, uh, pretending to listen and not really listening. Yes. And and what he, I, I think where he gets to as a playwright and, and, and the sort of deeper bit, which actually I would have quite liked him to spend a bit more time expanding was, was you know, what it really is to be a community, what the values that you have to put first are if you're really protecting everybody. And he's uh, pokes fun at assumption and privilege and sort of that slightly patrician behaviour that you often get on, um, you know, I, I think it is quite... West Coast, but I, I've seen it 
in England. And yeah. I'm sure you see it everywhere. I thought that was a clever thing about the play. And and yet he gives an, the anti-vax argument enough ground. I mean, he brings in kind of um, the reasons that people are yeah, anti-vax, yeah. which are not negligible and not um, overlooked. And I thought what was, um, yeah, what's so interesting, I feel I've been on both sides of that argument. With MMR, I was really worried. Yeah. With COVID, I've been very much sort of pro-vax. Um, but a lot of my friends, you know, are still kind of, you know, yeah, anti-vax. Yeah. So that's interesting. But what I really thought from the point of view of this conversation, really, and, and this podcast was that what was so fascinating was that this really big, serious issue yeah. was raised in the context of a comedy that literally reduces you to a heap of, act, you know, heap of laughter. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. even if you were an anti-vaxxer, I defy you not to sort of laugh at that scene yes. of parents being anxious. Yeah. And it's got this amazing sort of character on the live stream called Kaufman, yeah. who responds entirely <laughs> in emojis. And his final emoji, when everything's gone kind of horribly wrong, yeah. it's just kind of literally brings the house down. You know, the people yeah. just kind of, well, yeah. But there's such a, there's seat. such catharsis in that, really. And I think it's a really interesting uh, conversation around genre because we, you know, we are, as a culture, obsessed with genre. Yeah. And niche and, you know, needing to put labels on things so that we understand or find comfort in, you know, having some level of expectation before we put ourselves in front of the thing that has been defined. And actually, I think that, you know, the best, the best drama, the best stories, the best books, the best films have a bit of everything. Yeah. And also take you by surprise. And, and that, you know, the whole concept of, you know, comedy being tragedy sped up. I and mean, I've said it so many times, and I think it's absolutely true. I've done loads of things that are actually incredibly dark, but you do them at a lick, you know, and they suddenly become funny. But as a as an actor, you have to play it with the sincerest commitment and truth telling you possibly can. Otherwise, audiences are wise to it, and you will lose. The, the laughter because of it and yeah. I think you know and the reason that Eureka Day works so brilliantly is because it had fantastic actors on the stage completely committed to the reality of what it is that they're dealing with but it's only because it's something that we've all lived through and and there is hilarity to be had thank god you know because the the other side of that penny is that it's really bloody serious and we're talking about life and death situations when people react badly to vaccines that's that's a, that's a real thing you know yeah um but like all of these things like when i did young marks or you know any any situation where it, it was ba based on a real thing and that you know marks living in poverty in soho and what that pushed him to and what he represented to europe and everything that he was trying to achieve those were real real things but you in the in the right light, in the right costume, with the right writing, they you know they become a farce, you yeah. know, and that's what's so brilliant about it is that you know the really and truly genres can sort of be added retrospectively, yeah. but if it's a, if it's a really good story, it, it sort it sort of doesn't fit in anything. It, yeah, and I was wondering whether I I mean Richard Bean who 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 wrote Young Mark, yeah, I mean he is one of the great proponents of writing about huge huge um, issues in 
a comic yeah. format, essentially. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he's brilliant at that and really making them spring to life. He is one of those people who is extraordinarily good at um, making you think about really serious issues, yeah. like Brexit or something like that, and, and yet doing it in comic form. And I wonder if one of the things that's sort of happened mm, slightly post-pandemic and you know, as theatre's come back on its feet, yeah. whether you're right, whether we've got obsessed with genre, you know, so, you know, there is funny. Yeah. You know, I don't know, Jack Absolute Flies Again or something like that. And and then there is serious in which we will um, examine the t- kind of terrible issues that are afflicting the world. Yeah. But that idea that a very, very funny play can actually reach the heart of um, something that is profoundly important has yes. maybe got slightly lost in a way. And I was thinking tonight, well, partly because I'm going tonight, I'm I'm going to see um, the cherry orchard at the yard reconfigure as set in space. But but also, you know, you think about Chekhov, you know, Chekhov always described all those dramas. As comedies. As comedies. Yeah. And if you watch Ian Rickson's magnificent Uncle Vanya, which I think you can still watch online, really played up yeah. the comic elements of how kind of utterly, utterly hopeless and yes. pointless and inept Vanya is. Yeah. And yet at the same time made it a play about climate change and the the, the threat of the loss of a way of life. Yeah, yeah. Um, in ways that were, you know, as as kind of piercing as anything I've seen on a stage for a long time. So that is that interesting sort of tension, really. Yeah, and also people being, you know, that joy of moments where a character is exposed or made vulnerable by something and 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 the catharsis the audiences feel realizing that stuff that they have maybe experienced themselves is a universal human you know thing that we all go through and and how healing that is and so watching Astrov get drunk and you know Sonia fall over herself to, to to be close to him and to to want to be part of his life is we we know what that feels like and we know how lost Astroff is and we know how lost they all are and um and uh, you know but there is a togetherness in, in that story that they come together and that they react to each other and uh, in in ways that you know the the being the fly on the wall that the audience are you, you, there's a, there's such there is joy in it years and years ago we were doing uh, see how they run that Doug Hodge directed oh, yeah. in town but he said you know this only works if you play it desperately that these people are desperate and with every uh, bit of the story as it becomes more and more desperate and the, the, the problems and the hole from which you have to dig yourself out of gets deeper and darker that is when you will get the true comedy from it and and uh, you know and and if you play it for laughs which is another thing you know that the whole element of dogbury and uh, in much ado and and that was played for laughs but actually you could also play it as somebody desperately desperately trying to do the right thing and be yeah. the best watch that has been ever yeah. you know but there there is a line that you cross and um and i think that's really really funny but but there but there is i'm repeating myself but but that the, but that that catharsis and joy that we have in watching things go wrong yeah 
played beautifully because they are played with the true sadness or yeah. the true awkwardness or the true sort of, um, I don't know, lie of pretending to be one thing but actually you're something else or whatever it is that, you know, that the comedy has. You know, if you play it for, for all the truth of that, then that it, that it, there is nothing more gorgeous to laugh at because yeah. you, we all recognise what it is. As a young person, I was always a, a vague embarrassment to my more Methodist parents by my liking for the Whitehall farces, which oh, yeah. cannot really be said to tackle the serious um, issues of the age. Um, and I loved people, um, and, you know, really are basically trouser jokes. I mean, there are yeah. people running around without their trousers on. And um, I, I don't know, my parents really didn't like them. And I've always had an enormous um, fondness for slapstick. And so the Ray Cooney farce is like, um, see how they run. I mean, I just thought it was so funny, you know, yeah, and yeah. the idea of sort of vicars chasing around in embarrassing situations. But you're right, at the, at the heart of the writing yes. is um, a kind of... It does matter that a vicar isn't yeah. found in a woman's room with his trousers down. I mean, yes. even even if the effect is very light, that there is a kind of sense of jeopardy there. Yeah, and of course, noises off, which is the probably the perfect farce, a farce about a farce. It works because it's not only about theatre and yes. about theatre timing and strips the timing away, but also because it's about people having affairs and making terrible mess of their lives. <laughs> yeah. They gradually, by the third act, you know, you, you are so involved with the lives of these hapless actors. Yeah. So it's all of the it's the it's the juxtaposition of those two things. It is the fly on the wall element of an audience going, "Oh God, that's hilarious," and and the, and that we recognise it. You know, I remember um, years ago doing uh, the Duck House with Ben Miller, and that was such an interesting hybrid because, of course, Ben came from a stand-up, comes from stand-up, and and so he was constantly sort of going off piece and trying different stuff. But I think that the funniest funniest elements and we were on the road for about best part of six months the set for various reasons had to um you know went un underwent an awful lot of bashing about because we were on the road so and we were going from theater to theater so some bits fitted you know the the space better than other uh, other bits and there, because of the speed of one of the set changes, we had a carpet that had to sit on top of a carpet because one of the things, it was all about the political expenses and there they were a whole list That's right, yes, it was the one inspired by the MP's expenses, yes, exactly. wasn't it? Then the, yeah. Exactly, but there was one element that he'd basically been claiming for a flat um, and so we had to turn the space very quickly from the sort of posh home of the Tory MP or the Labour MP who was becoming a Tory MP, I think. And and then it very quickly became this London flat and they realised they couldn't get one carpet up and put another one down. So they had to put one carpet on top of another. And invariably, they would rock up and you couldn't get onto the stage. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't remember where we were somewhere. Um but I literally, there was one point I was supposed to do this very swift entrance onto the stage, but this very sort of um, dark teenage black carpet of the young bloke's flat, our son's flat in London was sat on top of this very posh carpet and and the, the, both of them had <laughs> rocked up and I literally went to, open, on, to come onto the stage and I couldn't get on. And that, it probably took about 10 minutes yeah. for... <laughs> It can't have been 10 can't minutes, maybe five minutes. minutes. Anyway, but Ben had to relay like the carpet. Yeah. <laughs> and honestly, 
I don't think I've ever known laughter like yeah. it. Because it was completely true and he knew and we were chatting the whole way through and I was stuck at the door going, Todd, I don't think they've noticed. And, you know, but the audience were on the floor. They were on the floor. It was just, it was joyous. It was absolutely joyous. And as brilliant as as Colin and Dan who wrote it, Colin uh, Swain, Dan Patterson, who wrote it, were, there was something about the complete and utter madness of that, that you couldn't have... But it was completely true because we were genuinely getting the carpet to a certain level so that I could open the door and we'd carry on. Yeah. You know, but but by the time we carried on, the rest of the scene was sort of irrelevant. And it is that, it's that, it's that, that joy that an audience have. I mean, it's in very, very basic terms. When they are included in a joke and that they know... in totally what's going on and 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 it's just this sort of you cannot you know your pants will never dry from the, you know from the just the pure guffawing that's got and and there's just nothing better yeah. and it is a, it is a catharsis and but it's there's something about that that it came it came out of the mayhem of that potentially awful moment yeah. of, of not being able to get onto the I, stage. I I really think it's true that you know that that kind of the the liberation of laughter yeah um especially you know in a time where um We've yeah, everybody's been through such a tough time. Everybody's still going through such a tough yeah, time yeah. at the moment, and you know the liberation of just being able to laugh in a room with other people. Yeah, at something that you you recognise the truth of, and that but that is essentially silly. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's wonderful, and I, I, as I say, I do. I hope. I hope people don't forget that. In that, you know, there's always the danger um, with theatre in tough times. Yeah, that it gets more and more serious. And really, really, we couldn't be in tougher times. And yeah. um, you know, somebody the other night said we, in fact, at the theatre. In fact, it might have been you, Nancy, but said, <laughs> you know, oh, no, it was, in fact, it wasn't. I know who it was. It was, it was Tom Sutcliffe on, on Front Row. And we were all in the studio together, which was in itself kind of new because, you know, for so long people have been zooming in. And he said, yeah, it's nice to be, get back to normal, though it does seem to be that normal represents being, you know, on the verge of nuclear war with the pound falling through the floor. And I mean, you know, that, that's kind of how normal looks oh, at the God. moment. And and so theatre, you know, obviously people want to respond to that. And so yeah. there are a lot of incredibly sort of serious, beautiful, well-meant plays being written about yeah, that. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I do... I do love it when things are funny. In fact, um, I found I was thinking about Pravda, which, of course, partly because Pravda now, which was Howard Brenton and David Hare, looks like so prescient about press barons and their control of um, society. And, yeah. and, and, and I, was, I do remember it as being, again, a play that just reduced me to helpless laughter. Yeah. But also, actually, the clinic in um, the Almeida at the moment yeah. is uh, a comedy about very, very tricky things. And I think Dippo Barua Etty, who's written it, um, doesn't quite pull it off, right. but he's got an incredibly funny scene where um, all the um, hidden conflicts of a family, which represent a sort of broader complex, 
set of problems about who can help who come to um, a head over a a scene where A, they're putting up the Christmas tree and B, they're playing the traditional family game of Ludo. And there's something brilliant about that kind of collision between, you know, family traditions, the banal and huge questions about identity and who has the right to speak and who, um, how you solve society's problems come to a head um, over a kitchen table. And, And, you know, people... People like Aikbourne and Alan Bennett and uh, have have been so good at that, and I I, I hope, um, yeah, the next generation of playwrights like Berua Ebti remember that that you know you can you can make comedy speak so loudly to people. Yes. And I think it's no coincidence either that, you know, it is the hardest thing to play. Many of our greatest actors like Mark Rylands, Maggie Smith, have been, you know, brilliant comedians. You know, Maggie Smith started off, I'm always fascinated by that. that She started off, you know, entirely in Boulevard. Comedy as the sort of ingenue. And all that timing that she learned, she brought both later to sort of Congreve and... Witchley and all those kind of classic plays, but also to tragedies where, you know, she was always incredibly affecting because she knows how to land a line, how yeah. to how to make something work. I love the science of that. I've had so many conversations over the years with different directors about, you know, partly in designing moments, but also then, you know, in the attempt of perfecting or repeating moments that you've discovered in yeah. preview and what it was that made it work and you know the, the science of if you look this way it doesn't work if you know if you land it here it works or it doesn't work if you take the pause there does it work or you know and that if somebody coughs in the wrong place uh. or you don't quite hit it I love it that it is exact in that way I remember years and years ago I don't even know if it was Martello Magni maybe Oh was it yes, Martello, Martello out of a house walked a man. Yes, was it out of a house walked a man. Yes, a, yes, a very old. He and Toby oh, Sedgwick. Yeah, you know what a loss. What a loss. You know, and and loved him as I'm, an actor so much. Yeah, and and really such an interesting, interesting play. I remember it so well, and and I think um, uh, shock-headed Peter did the same thing with Julian Bleach, where they basically the first moment. And I, and I remember this distinctly with Out of a House Walked a Man, was that they both came out and they described the nature of making an audience laugh and the exact science of where to leave the pause, where, where to hold the moment, where to stare at the audience and that they would, out of an awkwardness, begin to laugh. And that if you hold it even longer... And they were describing as we did it. Yeah. So they said, you know, and we'll take this moment. You know, or whatever. I can't even remember what it was, but it was a sort of, but it was a dis, it was a description of a scientific understanding of how a laugh would grow, as the laugh grew. Yeah, that's it was brilliant. really extraordinary. Yeah, but just so beautiful. And I remember Julian Beach coming out of Shockheaded Peter, and he just stood there, and he held it, and he held it, and he held it. And it was interesting that Dogbury did it, did something similar yesterday, and the audience weren't quite with him and then they and then they started to grow but I thought 
has he got the balls to hold it? And he did. He was yeah, great. Yeah. But it was that thing of there, there was a slight trepidation of whether or not it, he would qu- keep going. And I imagine, I suspect he's had better audiences than we had in those moments. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But he he was doing it. And I, and, I, and I love it for that. I love it for the fact that it is, you know, there, there's, a, there's a sort of compass yeah, and that you have to stay on course, and that if you sway left or right, you lose it, and and but also there is there is an element of it which is completely unpredictable, yeah. and you know, and and if you get heckled at a particular point, and and then you react to it beautifully. I mean, there was one boy yesterday, Ralph Davis was writing um, his sonnet for um, Beatrice, and he was finding uh, rhymes for. <laughs> For lady, and he going up to people in the front row, going, "Anybody, anybody, help, please!" You know, and somebody said shady, and he was like, "Ooh, shady, good. I prefer gravy." And it was just he was just riffing, yeah. but the, you know that it's dependent on the live moment. But there, there is something. I can't remember how I started. Yeah, but uh, well, this. I think I mean I think <laughs> it is. I mean I think well I think a it's incredibly nice to talk a little about uh, Marcello Magni, who yeah. was the most marvelous um, actor, hugely hugely important in yeah. this country's, um, well, in the world's theatre history because of his uh, foundation of complicity, which yeah. I think to a very large extent I feel introduced a different way of thinking and acting uh, to anything I'd seen. And yes. um, I, yeah, I really mourned his 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 yeah, death. Yeah. I felt that was uh, so sad. But also in podcast terms, it's always perfect to come back to where we began, which yeah. was comedy and much ado and a little wander through some more comedy and a sense of wanting more comedy in these uh, dark times. Yeah. Um, and I do think that is a good place to wrap up this episode of As the Actress Said to the Critic. It's goodbye from me, the critic, Sarah Crompton. And goodbye from me, Nancy, the actress. <laughs> <laughs>